You are listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. If you have Bibles, we're going to be in Colossians this morning. Colossians 1, 15 through 23 is our text today. And if you're using one of the black hardcover Bibles, at least in most of them, uh, you can find that passage on page 983. As we, uh, as we continue in our sermon series in Colossians today, we've reached what, at least in my humble opinion, is not only one of the most incredible texts in this letter of Colossians, but one of the most incredible texts in all of the Bible, and certainly in, in the New Testament. Colossians 1, especially verses 15 through 20, is really beautiful in form. We lose a little bit of it in the English translation, but it's written poetically, and it's most likely a, an early Christian hymn. Scholars debate uh, whether this hymn is Paul's original work or if it already existed and Paul adapted it for his letter. He kind of did like the Chris Tomlin thing and wrote his own bridge and chorus into an old hymn and like brought it in. Could be, could be that too. If you're more in academically inclined, if you read commentaries and things like that, as, as I do, it's actually kind of crazy how much attention some commentaries give this question of like, was Paul the original author of this hymn or did he borrow it and adapt it? Here's why that's crazy. Because at the end of the day, the point is not the pre-existence of this hymn. It's the pre-existence and the preeminence of Jesus. So if, if we walk away from these words this morning, thinking more about who wrote them than, what, than, than who they are about, we really will have missed the, the focal point of, of this text. This is a text, really unlike almost any other in scripture, this is a text about the incomparable person and work of Jesus Christ. As we've been seeing these past two weeks in our series, Paul is writing to this young church in this city called Colossae. False teachers have shown up there and they're questioning and they're challenging the sufficiency of Jesus. They're saying something like, it's fine if you want to follow Jesus, but you're going to need more than that. You're going to need to add some things to that. And so after his initial greeting and then expressing some gratitude and then describing how he's been praying for the Colossian Christians, Paul now gets to the heart of this letter. And as you'll hear this morning, the heart of this letter is all about the supremacy, the absolute supremacy, the preeminence of Jesus Christ. And Paul is going to say, Jesus isn't just sufficient. He holds first place in everything, in all things. So I invite you to listen now with open ears to this book that we love. Colossians chapter one, beginning in verse 15. He, that is Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. 
verse 21, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, we ask now by the power of your spirit that you would give us wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. We ask this morning that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened, that you would help us to know the hope to which you have called us, the riches of the the glorious inheritance in the saints. And would you help us to know the greatness of your power that is at work in this world and is at work within us. And we pray this all in the name of Jesus, who is the preeminent one. Amen. Well, as we try to to do justice to this text, which we're just going to really get to scratch the surface on today, let's look at these two senses of Jesus's preeminence that we see in these verses. We'll first look at cosmic preeminence, and then we'll circle back to talk about personal preeminence, cosmic preeminence and personal preeminence. First, cosmic preeminence. When when you receive, when you get a, a question about Jesus, when we get questions or challenges about our faith, uh, often the best approach is just to take that question at face value and give a, a direct answer to that question. But sometimes in order to answer someone's question, we actually have to first answer a question they're not asking. And so in Colossae, if, if the false teachers there are raising questions about Jesus's sufficiency, and as we saw last week, specifically questions about the sufficiency of knowledge and sufficiency of power that can be found in Jesus. We might then expect Paul to just take the rest of his letter, or at least a long time in his letter, to write a lot about those specific topics. But what he does instead is is kind of zoom out, almost as if he's saying, you might not be asking this, Colossians, but if you really want to see the sufficiency of Jesus, you have to see his absolute supremacy over everything. You, You need to see his cosmic preeminence. Jesus is preeminent, Paul writes in these first verses. He has first place over both creation and the church. Creation and the church. Verses 15 through 17 highlight Jesus' preeminence over all of creation. So who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Well, as Paul says first, he is the image of the invisible God. So no one has ever seen God the Father But Jesus, who took on flesh, who became a fully human man and entered into the world, he has made God known. He has shown us what God is is really like. But just because he entered into creation does not mean Jesus is equal with creation. When different groups, and, and especially cults, like for example, Jehovah's Witnesses, when they see a phrase in the Bible, like here in Colossians 1, that says, the firstborn of all creation, They take that to mean that Jesus was God's first created being, that he was created in timeline first. This is actually a very ancient heresy. It's an ancient false teaching that goes back long before Jehovah's Witnesses were a a thing. It goes all the way back to at least the third century and a man named Arius, and probably even earlier than that. But firstborn here 
can't possibly mean that Jesus was the first created being because the very next thing Paul writes is that Jesus was the agent of all creation. Not some of it, all of it. So in short, Paul's argument here is Jesus is the creator, not created. Biblically, the word firstborn is actually often a statement about status, not timing. So one example, Psalm 89 In Psalm 89, the psalmist refers to David, King David, as the firstborn. David, of course, was not the firstborn. He was the youngest of Jesse's sons. It's kind of a famous part of his story and how he was anointed to be king. Uh, nor, Nor was David the first king of Israel. Saul was the first king. But the psalmist is not speaking about timing, about who came first, but status. He's saying David is the epitome of what a human king of Israel looks like. David ranks first. So who is Jesus? Well, he's the image of God and he's the one who is supreme over creation. He ranks above creation. And what has Jesus done? He has created all things, all things, not some, not most, all things. That means as Paul elaborates things in heaven and on earth, things that are both visible and invisible. So not just all the the tangible things that we might think of, not just nature and what we might call creation that we can see with our eyes, but also unseen spiritual powers or what Paul sums up by saying the thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. So if false teachers, if one of the things they were questioning was Jesus's power over angels, over demons, over these unseen spiritual forces, Paul is asserting here, Jesus isn't just more powerful than those forces. He brought them into existence in the first place. It's kind of a more poetic way of saying maybe what your parents once said to you. I brought you into this world so I can take you out. It's, It's kind of Paul's poetic way of saying Jesus brought those powers into the world. He's not just more powerful. He can, he literally brought them into existence. So all things were created by Jesus, through Jesus. Also, the end of verse 16, all things were created for Jesus. So he's not just the source, he's the goal. He's the end. Here's a little bit of a light question for you on your Sunday morning. Why does everything exist? Why does everything exist? It exists at the end of the day, so Jesus could be Lord over it. Creation was created so that it could be ruled by Jesus. And in truth, in in principle, he rules over it all right now. And in the end, in the end, we'll get to see the full expression, the full experience of that. In the end, as we sang together this morning, then who shall fall on bended knee? All creatures of our God and King. But Jesus, as Paul continues, is not only the creator of all things, he's also the sustainer. The sustainer, verse 17, in him, all things hold together. So Jesus is not, you know, the the cosmic clockmaker who wound up the clock of the world and then just kind of let it go. He stays constantly present and active in his creation. A scholar named Michael Byrd put it this way, he says, Christ is the reason why there is a cosmos instead of chaos. Christ is the reason why there's a cosmos instead of chaos. So the sun came up this morning. 
The earth is, is rotating on its axis right now and it's making its rotation around the sun. The rain fell a couple of different days this week, not first and foremost because there are these impersonal scientific forces at work, but because, as the author of Hebrews puts it, Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. He sustains what he made. So Jesus is preeminent over creation. But as Paul then continues into verse 18, he says, in addition, Jesus is preeminent over the church. The church. He has begun, Jesus has begun a new kind of creation, a recreation by establishing a people for his own possession. There's this new humanity that's now coming into existence through Jesus and we call it the church. Jesus, Paul says, is the head of the church, meaning he is both supreme over it and is also the source of its life. Many times in the New Testament, we get this picture of the church as a body. The church is like a body and different members, that'd be people like you and me, who have different gifts from God, different gifts empowered by the Holy Spirit. We make up different parts of that body. As important as all of us are in making up those different parts, Paul's wanting to make sure we have very clearly in our minds, Jesus is the head. Jesus is the head. It's not ideal to live without a finger or a toe. Some of you know that experientially. Some of you have loved ones that know that experientially. It's not ideal to lose small parts of your body. It's really hard to live your life if you lose a limb. It's really hard to do that. That's my father-in-law. But to just to put it simply, without a head, you're dead, right? Without a head, you can live without some of those other smaller parts. You can't live without a head. Without a head, you're dead. Without Jesus, there is no church. There is no church. And where in verse 15, Paul was writing that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. In verse 18, we read, he's also firstborn from the dead. Okay, again, status, not timing. Because before Jesus' own resurrection, he himself raised up a couple people. He raised up Talitha. He raised up Lazarus, possibly others. But Jesus' resurrection was qualitatively different than those resurrections. His resurrection is what undermines death. It's what robs death of its power, and it's what secures a resurrection for, for his people. The first creation, the first humanity, began with Adam. But the church, this new humanity, begins with Jesus. So Paul's using this parallel, firstborn of creation, firstborn from the dead. Paul writes more about this in 1 Corinthians 15, where he says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So Jesus is firstborn from the dead, but his resurrection, of course, required first his death. And his death required first his life, his incarnation. And so in verses 19 and 20, Paul then goes back through those two things. He says, in Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Full divinity, all of God's attributes, they were present in, they dwelled in Jesus. And then Jesus has made peace by the blood of his cross. At, at infinite, immeasurable cost to himself, Jesus offered up his life for the life of the world. 
And in so doing, as Paul writes in this verse, he is the one who reconciles all things. Now, I want to just pause there and and talk for a minute about, about that piece. Because if we're not careful, we can really shrink down and reduce the scope of Jesus's work. It's easy for us to do. When, when we think about salvation, right? When you even hear the word salvation, what we most often do is, is kind of zoom in to think about our sin, maybe personally or humanity's sin, and Jesus's forgiveness of that sin. And that is a huge aspect of salvation. That's a huge part of what it is. But we have to remember that before sin entered the world, there was God's good creation. And it wasn't just humanity. It was broader than that. And although we are a focal point, human beings are not the totality of God's work. We're not everything in God's creation. Colossians 1 is proclaiming, get this, the scope of reconciliation is the scope of creation. The same scope, same scope. By by Jesus, all things were created and by Jesus, all things are reconciled. Now, it should be quick to point out, that does not mean Christians are universalists. Part of reconciliation, part of this making peace is that Jesus puts down everything that persists in rebellion to him. It's a costly peace. He has to put down the rebellion against him. But stated a little bit more positively, what this means is that Jesus refuses to abandon his good creation to the power of sin. He refuses to let sin have the final word over what he made. It means that though humanity, though all of creation has been corrupted, has been subjected to futility, Jesus's reconciling power is greater than sin's power. He will remake, he will restore all creation to its original goodness. You might not know it, but you actually get to sing that truth. It's kind of snuck into one of the verses that sometimes gets cut from the Christmas hymn, Joy to the World. Right? But Jesus comes to make his blessings flow. We sing in that song, as far as the curse is found. That's this. That means that the scope of creation is the scope of, of reconciliation. As I'm sure you're feeling in this moment, there's a lot in these verses. There's a, I mean, this is a meaty, full text that could spend a lot longer than we're spending on it today. The main idea from these first five or six verses is that Jesus has cosmic preeminence. Cosmic preeminence. Verse 18, that in everything, he is preeminent. He has first place. Because that's true, because that's true, what I want to say to you this morning, men and women, is get your eyes off yourself. Get your eyes off yourself. Whether you're aware of it or not, and I think Mallory did a great job setting me up to say this this morning as she led liturgy. But whether you're aware of it or not, in our cultural moment, the the air we breathe is hyper-individualistic and hyper-selfish, right? Without even thinking about it, we become consumed by and fixated on and absorbed with ourselves. And we're so oblivious to it. It's like a fish asking another animal, what's water? You know, we're just in it. Like this is just the atmosphere that we are in all the time. And so what if I told you this morning that you are not the center of the world, right? What if I told you this morning that you and I are not the point, that life doesn't revolve around us, 
right? Once we recover from the shock of that, because not much else in the world tells us that right now, once you recover from the shock of that, once you got past maybe feeling offended, I hope you would see the incredible freedom that that affords you and me. It's, it's exhausting to feel like you're actually at the center of your own life. It's exhausting to be constantly fixated on yourself, trying to create meaning for yourself, purpose for your life, trying to constantly express yourself. You know, how am I going to come across to this person? Or how am I going to come across over here to these? That's exhausting. It's a crushing weight. And it's one that a created human being like you and me is never meant to carry. It's never meant to carry. Jesus is preeminent over the cosmos. Not you, not me. Life is so much bigger than us. We are not the point of creation. All things were created for Jesus, for Jesus. And you are also, this one's going to get me in more trouble. You are also not the point of the church, right? One of the main reasons, if we're honest, one of the main reasons if we've moved churches over the course of our lives, we've done that more than once or twice. One of the reasons we've probably left churches is because we feel like our needs haven't been met. What if I told you that the church doesn't primarily exist to meet your needs? You going to come back next week? Maybe. Maybe. What if I told you that? But the church is not first and foremost about your and my spiritual or social benefits. The church first and foremost exists to exalt its head, who is Jesus Christ. The church exists to testify to the cosmic preeminence of Jesus. That's why the church exists. There's lots of other incredible benefits, including hopefully your spiritual and social benefits. That's not why the church exists. And so friends, I, I, I really say this to you with all love and affection. Get your eyes off of yourself. And because the gospel is not individualistic, here's what to replace it with. Replace it with doxology. Learn to practice doxology. Now, what does that mean? What is doxology? Doxology is, is a rhythm, often a liturgical rhythm, of just giving praise and adoration to God. So, when we come and we gather like we did today, like we are doing right now, we open our worship service with a song that's called The Doxology, just one of many doxologies. But we do that first in our, in our service because we're seeking as we gather to recalibrate our focus. We're trying corporately to get our eyes off of ourselves and to fix them on the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit from whom all blessings flow. Like verses 15 through 20 here in Colossians 1, doxology is often poetic. Sometimes it's set to music, but it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be. Doxology is just something you can return to when you are consumed with selfishness and self-absorption. When, when you're starting to buy the lie that you are at the center and that you need to create meaning for your life, you need to express yourself more. It's something you can run to for recalibration. It's something that reminds you who is Jesus? What has he done? And what does that mean for not just my life, but all creation? So I want to challenge you in the days ahead to memorize verses 15 through 20 of this passage. Get, get these words into your bones, into your soul. And if you look at this text and it just feels kind of impossibly long to memorize, then I would invite you to start with Paul's shorter doxology, which he shares at the end of Romans chapter 11. Drawing on some of the, the same themes that he's drawing on here in Colossians 1, in Romans 11, Paul says, for from him and through him 
and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Shorter, still packed with meaning. It's a doxology that we can get into our our soul. Jesus has cosmic preeminence. So get your eyes off of yourself and fix them on him. Okay, that's cosmic preeminence. Then in verses 21 through 23, Paul pivots and talks a little bit more about the personal side of this. And so second, let's talk about personal preeminence. Two of the most hopeful words in the Bible are the words, but God, but God. That that really is the gospel. That's the good news of Jesus in a two-word summary. Means sin is corrupted things, sin is fractured creation. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God, who is rich in mercy, made a way through Jesus Christ. I would argue this morning that verse 21 of Colossians 1 contains two of the other most hopeful words in all the Bible and you, and you. See, because after giving us this picture of the cosmic preeminence of Jesus, that he's first place in everything, creation and the church. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. He's the reconciler of all things. Paul then now says, and here's what all of that means for you. Here's what all that means for you. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. The reconciler of all things is also your reconciler. It's also your reconciler. So it's not just that the creation was corrupted by sin in some kind of anonymous, impersonal way. We are corrupted. We are alienated from God. And, and, and our posture toward him, we're not just apathetic toward God, we're hostile toward him in mind. And we've given outward expression to that hostility by doing evil deeds. There, there was enmity between God and us. There was a breaking of that relationship that God designed us for to have perfect communion, perfect fellowship with him. That was broken by sin, but it is no longer broken by sin. Jesus took on flesh in order to die in our place and to reconcile us with God. And if that in and of itself weren't incredible, in this reconciliation, as Paul continues here, Jesus is now presenting us holy and blameless and above reproach before him. It's borrowing, he's borrowing some, some Old Testament language that was used for sacrifices. People in the sacrificial system were supposed to present God their best, unblemished, flawless, blameless animals. As living sacrifices then, the sacrificial system has ended in Jesus, but as living sacrifices, we're supposed to present God our best. We're supposed to live holy lives and blameless lives and lives that are above reproach. Problem is, as as we all know, we we don't do that. Not by ourselves. No no matter how hard we try, no matter matter how many commitments or, or, or resolutions we make, we can't present ourselves before God blameless. But what Paul's saying here is Jesus can. Jesus can because Jesus was all of those things. He was holy and blameless and above reproach. And so clothing us with his own blamelessness, he can present us to God that way. We're going to close our our worship service in a little while this morning, singing a song that's based on Jude 24 and 25. And it really is a a song. It's, It's really a text in scripture that proclaims this incredible truth 
just in another part of the Bible. It says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. I would invite you this morning to sing that with renewed awe, with renewed awe. We who were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, Jesus is able to keep you from stumbling. Jesus is able to present you blameless, that you are today viewed as blameless in Jesus. And that on that great day, when Jesus comes again, you will be presented before God blameless. There is, however, a condition, a condition. Look again at verse 23. Paul says, if indeed you continue in the faith. So this reconciliation is not something to be assumed, is not something to be taken for granted. We don't have time this morning to do a deep dive into the doctrines of the assurance of salvation or what's sometimes called the perseverance of the saints. But but that doctrine, which I really believe is faithful to scripture, when we read it in scripture, when we read the texts that support that doctrinal truth, they are always precious truths for weak and needy people who are battling their doubt and their inadequacy. They are never presented in scripture as a doctrine for presumptuous people. It's not for people who take Jesus for granted. It's not for people who who dabble in devotion to other gods, other philosophies, other worldviews, and then see Jesus as some kind of get out of jail free card. Now, Christians, we are called to continue in the faith, to not shift away, as Paul writes, from the hope of the gospel, from this good news about Jesus. And Paul, as he writes this, he sounds really confident that the Colossians are going to make it. He's like, I think you're going to do it, guys, but keep going. Keep going. Don't change course now. Those are words that we need to hear and heed as well. We can never see Jesus and the gospel, his life, death, and resurrection as simply the 101 class for Christianity that then once we got that down, now we, now we move on to bigger and better things. There are no bigger and better things, right? It absolutely is the 101 class It's also the 201 and the 301 and the graduate and the postgraduate and the doctoral and all the way to your deathbed. It's the class for every moment in all of life. It's everything. So I said earlier, in light of the the cosmic preeminence of Jesus, that we need to get our eyes off of ourselves. As you do that, in light of verses 21 through 23 here, also then see yourself through the eyes of Jesus see yourself through the eyes of Jesus. The gospel is not individualistic, but nor is it impersonal. Nor is it impersonal. Jesus is the preeminent one. He's the point of everything. He's the center of it. He has first place. But that does not mean that you are some kind of insignificant anonymous cog in an impersonal machine. The one who reconciles all things is also your reconciler, right? And you, and you the more we actually start to grasp that that cosmic scope, the more meaningful the personal side of this actually becomes. Like, Like if Jesus is the preeminent one, how incredible is it that he sets his affection on me? Right, we're gonna find ourselves like the psalmist in Psalm 8 saying, who am I? Like, what is man that you are mindful of him? Who am I that you would do that for me? And when you're questioning whether Jesus is sufficient for some aspect of your life as the Colossians were, 
Well, if Jesus can reconcile all things in the cosmos, he can certainly reconcile you. If Jesus holds all things together, he can certainly hold together you and your life. So as you get your eyes off of yourself, then see yourself through Jesus' eyes. He is mindful of you. He loves you. He is the reconciler, not of this anonymous, impersonal creation. He's your reconciler. By the blood of his cross, he has made peace not only for the whole cosmos, but he's made peace with you. And because that's true, because that's true, give Jesus personal preeminence in your life. Give Jesus personal preeminence in your life. He has cosmic preeminence. So give him personal preeminence, first place. Ascribe to Jesus the place that is rightfully his to occupy in your life. I'd invite you to consider this morning, what is competing for preeminence? What's competing for first place in your life right now? Is it your career? Maybe your your studies as you prepare for a career? Is it your money? The the pursuit of, of building wealth, whether that's for yourself or to kind of pass along to another generation? Is it a relationship? Are you, are you giving someone else preeminence, whether that's a friend or someone maybe you're in a dating relationship with, maybe a, a spouse, maybe one of your children? Are you giving someone else preeminence? Or maybe it's, it's yourself. Maybe when you're honest, you find that you're, you really put yourself at the center of your life and you're seeing this morning that you don't belong there, that, that it's not true. And it's actually a crushing weight that you, that you weren't meant to bear. The preeminent one, the real preeminent one is your reconciler. So get your eyes off of yourself and onto him. See yourself through his eyes. And friends, in, in this incredible text, this is what I hope you see this morning. Th- this is in a, in a really succinct summary, in a beautiful, beautifully written summary. This is the story of the world. This is the story of the world. God is reconciling the world to himself and he is reconciling us. Would the beauty and worth of Jesus Christ become bigger in your eyes today? When you walk out of this room, would the person and work of Jesus be more astonishing to you today than when you came in? Would you you see today that Jesus is not someone that you need to make relevant to the different parts of your life, but that actually everything, not only in your life, but in all of this world, in all of creation, finds its relevance in him, in relationship to him? Because Jesus is preeminent in everything. Give him preeminence in your life. Amen. Amen. Let me pray. Father, we we rejoice today in who you are. We rejoice today, Jesus Christ, in who you are and what you have done and what that means for the whole cosmos and for our lives. Thank you that you are a God who does not abandon creation to the power of sin. Thank you that you are a reconciler who does not abandon us to the power of sin. And I ask that as we come to this table, by the power that your spirit provides, that we would see Jesus as he is today. Jesus, help us to see you. Help us to see the cost that you have paid for our reconciliation and the reconciliation of all things. Help us to come this morning with more awe and astonishment. Help us to come this morning with more gratitude. In all of it, fix our eyes on you this morning. We pray this all in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. 
To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.